After many years of being apart, Yaakov, Jacob, is finally going to reunite with his brother Esav. This is, of course, after he's had to flee, having taken the blessings, having taken the bracha, deceiving his father, and living for a long time, getting his own one-armcompense at the hands of Lavan, who would deceive him not one, but almost ten, if not a hundred times. And now Yaakov gets to meet Esau. And he sends him gifts, and he sends him hundreds and thousands of animals, sheep, camel, goats, everything under the sun. And it works. The moral of the story, what is the Torah trying to teach us? When in doubt, bribes pay. Say what? You're listening to the Tanakh Talks Podcast. My name is Yaakov Beasley, and today we're going to be dealing with the really problematic reunion of Yaakov and Esav. So I'm recording this morning in the hills overlooking Alon's fruit. And obviously a lot of thought over Shabbat as to the whole very nature of this story. On one hand, it's such a wonderful reunion, brothers finally back together. And yet there's something that just doesn't seem right about it. Because what Yaakov does, he humiliates himself. He pays off Esau. And Esau says, you know something really, what's the, what's the point? It appears that what Yaakov is doing is simply buying him off. And Esau has a price. He can be bought. The old Bernard Shaw line, when he asked a girl, would you sleep with me for a million dollars? And she said, sure. Great, how about five? Are you kidding? What type of girl do you think I am? Oh, we already established that. Now we're just setting the price. Same thing here. This is what Yaakov is doing. He sends Esau enough gifts, and apparently Esau can be bought. Unless there's something deeper. So I want to start to build an answer, and I want to start with a question raised by one of our great Shabbat guests, Rabbanit Sarah Manning. Rabbanit Sarah Manning is a wonderful person, my wife's Chavrusa, and she also happens to be the husband of Rabbi Anthony Manning, who's a great website on all sorts of great Torah topics worth looking up, anthonymanning.com. And she asked the following question at the Shabbat table. What is the point of chapter 36? To tell me that Asaph had 12 kids, because that's how you close off families in Sefer Breshit? Maybe. That you, that Esau had to leave the land of Israel? Possibly. In fact, the language is exactly the way it was with Lot. With Lot, just as Lot left and thereby disqualified himself from being part of the covenant, so to Esau. In fact, one of the commentaries on the Haggadah, why does it mention that Esau dwelled in Har Seir, in the Haggadah? To demonstrate only we deserve the land of Israel because only we fulfilled the conditions of the covenant. It said you have to be slaves for 400 years. They never went through this, therefore they don't get the reward of the covenant either. But having said that, why? Why all this emphasis on Esau's greatness, his future greatness, generals and leaders and kings that come out of him before a king comes out of B'nai Israel? So I want to, with that question in the background, I want to go back to our story. So a careful read of our story shows that there's two and a half parts. Now, what do you mean two and a half? Normally, we have nice parallelism. And here we don't. We actually have 20 verses. Jacob finding out Asaph's coming to meet him, and there's 20 verses of preparation. There's an eight-verse interlude where Jacob goes, mixed martial arts, and gets into this huge fight with some unnamed person in the middle of the night. And then finally, 20 verses at the end, the actual meeting. 
Now, of course, the turning point is that fight with the angel that occurs, and we're not going to deal with that in depth here, except to suggest that this is what's going to create the turning point necessary that causes the tensions in the first half to resolve themselves in the second half. But let's look at the first half. What do we have? Yaakov identifies a threat. Then he divides the people. He prays to God, describing the encounter that's going to take place. He sends gifts. And then there's a movement of the camps. I repeat, threat, division, encounter, gift, movement. This approach is taken by Rabbi Samad in his book, and I just want to share it with you here. There's four verses to describe the threat. Okay, Yaakov sends emissaries, and he they come back and tell him, guess what, your brother, he's coming to greet you. This time he's not baking a cake, he's bringing 400 armed men. Don't you feel better? And of course, the response is immediately, Yaakov is very fearful, and he divides the people with him. And then he prays before God, Please, God, help save me from the upcoming encounter. There's a prayer about the encounter. And then there's eight verses discussing the gifts that he gives. I will atone with my, his face. The gift goes before my face. I will see his face. Perhaps where is my face. And it describes in tremendous detail all these gifts that he gets. Finally, there's the movement of the camps, moving towards the Yabok. So the first half has the threat and the division, taking up six verses the prayer, the encounter, another four verses, and then the gifts that he sends Asaph to try to sway his anger, to cause him to give up his thoughts of revenge, bribe him as it appears at this point in time, and then finally the movement of the camps. What actually happens? Well, it's interesting. The first two verses describe this. Yaakov looks up. He sees Asaph is coming, 400 months with him. He divides the camp. But that's it as opposed to the six verses to describe the fear and the tension that is so palpable. Suddenly, there's five verses, this touching reunion. It's something that Yaakov does not expect. Instead of violence and slaughter, what we have here is warmth and brotherhood and sincerity. And it's really mind-boggling. Did Yaakov just get it wrong? On one hand, it appears so. Yet on the other hand, why are there 400 armed men? I think the answer comes in the way the stories are told. So we, as I mentioned, in the second half, we have in two verses, the first two parts, the threat and the division. Then we have the encounter, and Asaph turns out to be as warm and caring and happy to see Yaakov. And he's generally surprised, what are all these people with you? What are you doing? And again, we now have four verses on the gifts. And they argue, and Yaakov says, you know, take everything, take everything, it's all for you. And Esau says, Yeshli Rav, I have enough, I have a lot. And Yaakov says, Yeshli Ko, I've got everything I need, I've seen your face. And eventually Esau does take the gifts. The question is why? Because it appears that this is just, the gifts are an afterthought. They're not necessary. Esau has already forgiven Yaakov. Is that true? I suggest that in order to understand what's happening here, we have to look at two things. Why is so much emphasis placed on the actual acceptance of the gifts in the second half, if they are in fact secondary? Look very carefully. Yaakov took a blessing from Yitzchak. That blessing was very simple. It says, God will give you the riches of the land. 
and people will, many people will serve you. And many nations will serve you. Your brother will, you will be a ruler over your brother. And your, the sons of your mother will bow down to you. So what we have is superiority over a brother, tremendous wealth. One is a master over the other. There's an act of bowing. And then there are nations bowing to the person receiving the bracha. Yitzchak thinks this is the bracha he's giving to Esav. In fact, it's the bracha that Yaakov took by deceiving Yitzchak. Now, what is Yaakov giving Esav at this point in time? He gives him tremendous wealth. Rashi points out at the beginning of the parsha, look, none of this is connected to the land. My taking the bracha from you did nothing for me. All the things that he gives him are, on one hand, they're not connected to the land, but on the other hand, they do represent tremendous riches, and Esav can be, is now a very, very wealthy man. Yaakov calls Esav Adoni, my master. He says, I am your Evid. He bows before him, and then his family bows before him. So four out of the five conditions, the brothers, the fact that one brother is wealthy, that one is master of the other, the bowing, Yaakov is now fulfilled in a way that Esav is the real recipient of the blessing. And for those who don't see this, Look carefully again at that long second half where it discusses the allocation of the blessings. What does it say? Esav said to him, What do you mean by giving me all this camp? He said it's to find favor in the sight of my Lord. Again, the abyssians, the humility. And Esav says, I have enough. Let what you have keep for yourself. And Yaakov says, No, no. Take my gift. For seeing you is like seeing the face of God and you should be happy with me. But then Yaakov continues and notice the change in the wording. Take my gift. Wait, change in the wording? It says, take my gift, take my gift. But what's interesting is that the Hebrew doesn't say, take my gift, take my gift. It says the first time, take my gift. And the second time it says, take my blessing. On simple glance, the blessing here is all the gifts that Yaakov's giving him. But in retrospect, what do we see? Yaakov is doing more than simply giving him gifts and trying to bribe Esau. This is not bribery. Yaakov is giving him the blessing back. The same bracha that Yitzchak meant to give to Esau that Yaakov had taken. Remember, Yitzchak gave three blessings. One's to Yaakov, dressed as Esau, intended for Esau. One to Esau, knowing that it's Esau. And one to Yaakov. Yaakov knows, understands he has no need for Esau's blessing. He has his own Birkat Avraham, the blessing of the land of Israel, the blessing of abundant children. The real blessing, of course, being a partner in the covenant, the builder of God's chosen people. And so he willingly gives to Esau what is Esau. And Esau accepts. And he leaves the land. And that's the significance. There is no bribery here. Rather, it's a recognition of wrongdoing that has been performed and the efforts, the tremendous efforts a person must undertake in order to undo the, the past. And this is what Yaakov does to his credit. Let's end with Rabbi Sarah Manning's question, why the list of all those people and nations in the power of Esau? Because there were five parts to the blessing that Yitzchak intended to give Esau, which Yaakov took. The meeting of the brothers, where one brother is wealthy and mastery and bowing, and the riches, all these things are heaven done. But nations still have to bow to Esau. And therefore we have a long chapter 36 
that describes the strength and the power of Esau's descendants in Seir, in Edom, to demonstrate that all of the bracha that Yaakov had given to Esau had finally come true, had come to pass. And once that happens, then brachot and kingship can go to B'nai Israel, to the Jewish people. Have a great day. This has been the Tanakh Talks podcast, live from Alone Shvut.